Today, we're talking to Kashif from Skill Gigs about confronting failure and the staffing industry of the future. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. And I, I typically just like to start our conversation off with you explaining what Skill Gigs is and, and why you're involved with it. Absolutely. So uh, Skill Gigs is a talent marketplace which uses AI to source and match talent for employers uh, in two main categories. We do it for the healthcare industry and the tech industry. In the healthcare industry, we're really focusing on your RNs, CNAs, and LPNs, and helping acute care facilities and long-term care facilities find contract workers. Our claim to fame recently has been what we did during the COVID time period where we were able to supply much-needed nursing staff right in time to some of the largest hospital systems in the country, especially when the whole thing was just exploding uh, in the marketplace. And the AI really came before then by being the main supply channel for a lot of, for example, some of the largest hospitals here in Houston, Memorial Hermann, HCA, which are some of the top 10 biggest hospital systems in the country. We also help other companies like Facebooks of the world and HEBs and Amazon's of the world hire programmers as well. And, you know, the way the, the whole system really works is we've taken the concept of e-commerce and we have implanted that on top of the hiring process. And we have said, okay, you know, just kind of like how you buy stuff in an e-commerce tech, why couldn't we just do that for hiring as well and take hiring away from being that boring resume application, recruiter-driven applicant tracking system driven uh, process to a more of a collaborative, transparent, bidding-based system, which creates better benefits for everybody involved. Oh, explain the bidding to me. Yeah. So, I mean, when you come into Skill Gigs, you come in and you build what's called your 3D resume. So, Skill, the name uh, itself comes from the fact that instead of using uh, a recruiter to look at your resume and decide if you're good enough for that job, we use what's called a skill density analysis within the 3D resume. And the system goes in and the machine learning learns what you're really good at in your role. So for example, if you're a software programmer, let's say you do Java, it asks you and figures out, hey, how long on your daily basis are you actually doing Java, uh, JavaScript, XML, whatever stack you're using, builds up that data and then matches that data against what the employer is looking for in the similar vein. And so when that happens and the employer, before they can engage with you or talk to you, they have to put a bid on you. And then you get a chance to uh, show that if you're interested in that bid or not, and if you are interested or, or not interested, uh, that's when the conversation stops with the employer. Hey, maybe the bid is too low. I'm looking for $100 an hour versus you just bid me at 70 so we want to take that out of the equation right off the bat. And we want to make it really easy for people to make sure it's transparent and everybody can earn what we call their real mafia value. Uh, and by doing this right up, up front, we remove these awkward conversations later on and you go right into you know, the hiring process with a clear understanding of what, what you're going to be earning. And therefore you're able to then you know, talk about the more other important things like your skills and why you're good for the job, et cetera. Any of your past companies prepare you for this or inspire you to do this? 
Yeah, I mean, the story behind Skill Gigs is that, you know, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur, been in the staffing industry for 20 plus years now, uh, have built variety of staffing companies. And one day when I was, uh, one of my, I, I had a no staffing company and uh, I was uh, talking to a customer about to go to the airport, uh, you know, I had to catch a flight and the customer who had just opened up a new floor, a hospital floor, and uh, they needed nurses, uh, and but they were really struggling. And this customer was this nursing manager, actually. She was super stressed because if she could not get the adequate amount of nurses on the floor, she could not deliver, you know, the healthcare that she needed to deliver at her facility. And you know, it costs a lot of money to keep these floors running without any, you know, customers to take care of or patients to care take care of. So. Uh, you know, as I was leaving, uh, I, I spoke to my recruiting manager in my company. I was like, look, you know, she needs these ER nurses really badly. What can you do? At least can you give her a couple to just get started? And, you know, the, the nurse, the recruiting manager kind of looked at me, you know, with, with, with a smile on her face. And we both knew it was not going to happen in a couple of days. It's going to take at least two or three weeks till we're able to create some kind of momentum for her and bring her the kind of talent that she's looking for. But this was obviously in high demand, even back then. And as I was leaving, I was uh, calling an Uber, right? And the thought came to my mind, which is like, hey, wouldn't it be cool that if this hiring manager could go in an app and select the people, or we can help her select the people through technology, which are fit for her, and she can engage with them directly without having to actually come to us, give us a requirement, and then our recruiters pick up the phone manually or email or LinkedIn or whatever and go through a cold calling, cold calling session for her to find her a pipeline of candidates. And that's kind of like how, you know, skill gigs started in my mind. Mm. But obviously, you know, that was because I was coming from the staffing industry. I'd built companies in there successfully. And uh, yeah, so that helped a lot. Help me understand a little bit deeper. Did you actually end up building a skill gigs like product at that agency to solve that problem, or did you not? And then go do it for developers. Yeah, no, no. So I did do it at that agency. So then I set up a brand new company, you know, called it Skill Gigs, and uh, you know, went through a complete development lifecycle. Came up with the prototype, came up with the beta, went to market. You know, just your typical product development, lifecycle, product launch, uh, A-B tested the whole thing, you know, trying to get customer feedback loops going, you know, the whole nine yards till we came to a point in 2017 where the e-commerce system was working the way I'd imagined it to be working. And you could imagine, I mean, when you're developing an e-commerce system from scratch and SkillGigs was entirely custom built, uh, we didn't go and, you know, uh, build on top of Shopify or any of these other e-commerce apps out there. We built the whole thing from scratch. Uh, so there was a lot of hard work, a lot of hard ache, a lot of bugs that we had to go through and work through and user experience issues, et cetera, till 2017, we felt really good about it and we launched uh, in the broader market. So you didn't ever solve the problem over there in healthcare? <laughs> well, we then, yeah, but no, we never solved the problem there in that agency. But what we did was that we came back and so this is where it connects. One of the categories that we brought into Skilgis was nurses, right? Oh. So it was no staffing, and it is the problem that we're solving is just that we're solving in a different entity entirely. Oh, so there's more than just software engineers on Skilgigs. 
Yeah, so there's nurses on, on, on uh, skill gigs as well. So there's nurses and software developers. Those are the two main categories that we focus on. Well, there's a lot of money in software and healthcare, so not bad categories to pick. <laughs> well, we, we, we're trying our best. So you've been a CEO five times. Were all of those companies you founded or were some of them you were just employed as a CEO? All of them I founded. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell myself this is the last one. It's never the last I'll one. I'll never do it again. I yeah. promise I won't do it again. And I always end up being pulled in because of something. Of course, because the moment you declare that, the next day some great opportunity comes out of nowhere that you have to take. <laughs> That's our Achilles heel, isn't it? If you were to step back, obviously you, you're able to delegate, you're able to build these you know, large companies, so you've got these leadership skills necessary to do so, but I want you to take a moment and step back and look at your entire history of experience and find like the one thing that you think is the most important thing as far as your personal progress and growing as a leader. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I mean, obviously there is not one thing. There's a whole bunch of things. I could probably write a book on it. But if, if there was to be one thing, I think it, it's the fact that being able to deal with failure and being able to forget that failure really quickly and lesson learns and moving on, uh, I think has been a skill that has probably uh, served me the best. You know, I don't let failure bring me down. I take it as a leverage to, you know, go back at it again and succeed. And, you know, I come from the, probably the same, uh, you know, school of thought as Elon does, which is never give up. So I think those yes. things combined have served me really well in every one of the businesses that I founded over the years. Where did you get that? Did you get that from your parents or did you get that from a difficult childhood? Uh, no, I had a great childhood. So it was not, I don't know, maybe it's in my DNA. It's just I forget the failures fast. I don't let them linger. Maybe that's just how my biology is, if you will. But I leverage it to the to the health. Yeah, I think it's probably more DNA than anything else. Well, it's very efficient because you know you get punched in the face. There's two things you can do: you can cry, or you can get up and move on. And it's you just got to do that. Some people will spend their whole lives crying. Some people will spend their whole lives debating whether they should get up and move on. And other people are just like, well, I'm out of fork in the road. I'm going that way. And I think, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the secondary, if you will. And, and, and look, I mean, I think we both know that failure is always hovering around us as entrepreneur, mm -hmm. uh, entrepreneurs, as founders or, or anything, actually what we're doing in life and being able to deal with that failure in a positive manner, I think, Again and again, that story has been door is always successful. So thankfully, that's, that's a skill that I have, and I think it served me well. Yeah, I would argue that success is simply a collection of failures. Yeah, you go from one failure to the other, and in between is yeah. successes are, so. Yeah, it's a weird thing, too, because if you're always pushing forward, then you're, you're failing regularly. So when people come from the side and be like, oh, look, you're successful, it's like, quiet, I'm busy failing. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out this next step. Cause if you sit around, then you just, you die, <laughs> you get eaten alive. Obviously. And I, I liken it to kind of like creating a motion picture, right? Mm -hmm. You have these scenes that are going on and people don't see how the scenes actually put together and what really creates a movie. And they just watch the movie and they're like, Oh, what a great movie or what a bad movie, whatever it was. But everything that happens is in between those scenes. And 
how you put the scenes together in the end. And you're always on to the next scene. You're always on to the next thing. And uh, so, I, yeah, no, I agree with you on that. Absolutely. Did you build a family while you were building your businesses? I did. I did. I have a beautiful wife and three kids, uh, two daughters and a son, uh, a son who is a junior, a middle schooler, and a very recent addition to our family. She's 15 months old. Yeah, the baby of the family, if you will. I love it. I have a five-year-old daughter, a four-year-old son, and a seven-month son. Oh, how beautiful. So I'm right there at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you understand how, how much that takes. So it's so important that your family is supportive of what we do. And I think uh, they suffer sometimes because of us, obviously, especially if you're sometimes on vacation or something and you're dealing with a you know work situation. But thankfully, I have a supportive family who... I think has been, you know, my wife uh, has been a big, you know, bedrock in all of this, backbone to all of this. And if she did not take away some of the stresses of raising a family and, you know, take that on herself, I probably would not have founded five companies. So, oh yeah, yeah. I think that support very important, and the kids as well, especially as the kids get older. You know, if if uh, they are able to participate in it, it makes this a lot more easier. Yeah, and the kids are the best investment you're ever going to make, spending time with them so they know what a good dad looks like. Having kids has taught me it, it, it's an accelerated course in life. <laughs> Just like here's incredibly difficult moments packed with unbelievable joy. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's not, it, it is not easy to forget the failures there. Uh, it's easy right. to forget the failures here, but it's very difficult to forget the failures there. So that's a tough one. Yeah, you need a wife that helps forget the failures too. That's a str- strong one. For the for the first three, I'm about six, seven years into this business currently. Right. For the first uh, three years, me and the wife were not on the same page. Yeah. We weren't getting along. It was the first time we ever had kids. We gave up ourselves. You know what it's like. And then we just got to this point where I was like, it's either got to that fork in the road. It's either... I, you can't you can't live for so long with a foot out the door, and I, so I just committed like fully, and I was like, I'm in it, I'm Papa Bear, like this is what I'm doing, and everything changed, right? Like everything started getting better. It took a lot of time, but it's been about four years since that moment, and man, I can tell you today, without exaggerating, my wife's my best friend. Obviously, we still have you know the normal amount of of interactions and disagreements and whatnot, but it is so much easier. It is than it was before when you have someone supporting you and being that foundation and she really likes the mom role yeah. you know she she loves the traditional role she wants to be be a good mom and and sometimes people from the outside will say things like oh well he should take care of the baby half the time i was like look you do what you want in your your relationship in our relationship we both talked about what we're good at we made decisions on what responsibilities we would own and that's what it that's how it how it came out to be I think that alignment is key, right? And I think once you figured out that alignment, it just helped propel you in your professional world. And it, it, it is exactly that. I mean, everybody has to look at, you know, what skills or what am I good at? And what can I bring to this relationship or to this family? Because obviously there's a lot, a lot of responsibilities. There's, you know, you have a vision for your kids. Uh, how do you want to raise them? Where do you want to send them to school? You know, what kind of individuals do you want to become in society? And it takes a lot of hard work, you know, to do that. And you know this. So I think 
a wife's, you know, or a partner that understands that and, you know, and both sides, right? I mean, uh, the person who's providing and the person who's actually doing the work at home, they both have to align. And if they do, then magic happens. 100%. Now with the kids, you're farther ahead with me. You have much older kids. Are you watching how they're interacting and adopting technology? Is that helping you as an entrepreneur to see them engage with it? Yeah. So I think one one of the coolest things is that, uh, you know, I think I have through osmosis given my kids this bug for entrepreneurship as well. And, you know, we have these you know, we could be on vacation somewhere and my son brings up a particular business problem that I was talking about. He wants to learn more about it. He talks to me about technology, you know, how he's seen other people solve it. Sometimes when I'm launching a product, I send it over to him like, oh, take, take a look at this. Tell me what you think. How's the user experience? What is the UX like? Is it easy? Is it simple? Do you connect? And so, uh, you know, and I, I get a lot of feedback from the younger generation, if you will. And, I, and it's very helpful. Uh, I mean, this is the TikTok generation. This is the Instagram generation, right? It really helps to understand that, you know, get their feedback on the way we're developing things. It always helps. Yes, definitely. What technologies are they really interested in on their own? Well, AI, I mean, uh, ChatGPT. My son is extremely interested in ChatGPT, uh, ChatGPT 4. He's also big into video production and he's into cars. So, you know, he is, you know, all about TikTok videos and Instagram videos, and he wants to be the next uh, big throttle house, if you will. You know, so he's using a lot of these video technologies out there. He's using AI in video technology out there as well. He was showing me something he was playing around with the other day. And, you know, the same for my daughter. I think she is uh, really into Instagram and TikToks and using those for, and YouTube. I mean, she is you know, really big into YouTube as well. She's an artist. She likes theater as well. So, you know, having this access to these videos on TikTok and YouTube just opens up a brand new world for them, right? Especially at their ages, she's 13 years old. So it's just, you know, a bunch of mentors available for free. It's an amazing time to be alive in. Absolutely. The materials, to I'm 35 for context. The materials for education today are such, they're so much more abundant and of such a high quality than when I first started. It's amazing. You, it, As long as you have that drive, you can literally do anything. <laughs> it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I told my kids, uh, I said... And, you know, they're young and you can, you can tell me if, if this is a, if this doesn't work in reality, if it doesn't scale as they age, but my current plan, I told them, I said, look, all you have to do is you have to learn to read, write, do basic mathematics because we homeschool them. So you have to do those things. And then after you know those things, then you have to come to work with me. This is not optional. You have to come to work with me. Then you then have to learn how to make money. They have to learn sales calls and processes. Now, I don't care if they're an entrepreneur and I'm not pushing them to own their own business. But as a father, my responsibility, if they were, if that's the equivalent of me teaching them to hunt a thousand years ago, I'm teaching them how to provide, how to generate revenue and generate sales. If they want to use it, great. They, they may not. They may wake up one day in their 30s and remember all those skills and, and decide to put it to use then. Right. But that, that's what I said. So, read, write, basic mathematics, then learn to make money. And then they can, I expect them out of the house by age 10. So 
<laughs> it's, and that's the, it's funny you say that because early on in my life, one of the things that my dad did, which was something similar, our family used to own a, uh, a shoe factory. And, you know, this was quite a large industry that we used to own. Uh, and my dad, every summer, would just send me over there. My uncles used to be the ones who ran it. Uh, it was it, my grandfather had set it up. But my grandfather, my dad would send me to the factory uh, at the, in the summer to just hang out with my uncle to see what was going on. And I think growing up, doing that every summer, it just completely changed my outlook to the world, right? You know, I think I learned a lot of what I've done over the years from there as well. So very similar to what you're talking about. And I think uh, it's very, very important in the modern world, especially. It's super important, especially with AI coming in and everything else happening and some of these careers going away. What's not going to go away is the hustle, is learning how to sell, learning how to communicate and talk to people, learning how to put together a vision and then execute around it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're trying to find a job, trying to make a movie, trying to make a product, trying to become something. I think these skills are helpful in all of those uh, efforts, if you will. I want to talk to you about staying focused, but briefly before I do, let your son know that yesterday I saw one of the first movies made by AI. It was only 10 minutes long. It was somebody had posted it on LinkedIn and they had, you know, the AI wrote the script, the AI generated the frames of the movie. And I'll tell you what, man, it was not that bad. It was like, it was what I would expect a film school students graduating project to be. Crazy, isn't it? And these are early days, by the way. Very early. Yeah, right? These are early days. Here's the thing, what's going to happen, you know, 50 years from today. Well, you and I will be hanging out inside of the computer. Consciousness will probably be transferred inside the computer. It'll be sponsored by skill gigs. Or there'll be a skill gigs area inside the computer. No <laughs> more meta. It's <laughs> book as it right. We will all be meta somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I think he'll do all of this stuff and then like some other company will build on top of their learnings and just yeah. like completely dominate market share. Did you ever make shoes? Did you ever actually go in the factory and make the shoes? I, I watched it get made. I never really did it mm -hmm. myself, but you know, there was a, a, you know, watched all the, all the workers and, you know, mm -hmm. chemical processes and the dyes being made and the burners and, you know, the warehouses being stocked and the distribution happening. And then it getting to the various, you know, channels of distribution and the sales process. I was just a kid, kind of like in a chocolate factory, if you will, right? I would just walk around, make friends with the foreman and, you know, all these workers and hear their stories and sat and did what they did. And, and it was, it was a fun time. It was probably the best summers that I ever had. You, you felt like an adult, right? In, in, inside this whole world. And it was very cool. Yeah, my dad would take me to work with him. That's how I got into technology. And they thought it was cool because I was, you know, eight or 10 and I could, my dad would give me these little tasks on the computer. And then, you know, the 30 something, in, you know, engineer is surprised by the eight, 10 year old doing stuff on the computer. And then that just fueled the fire more because then I thought it was cool that they thought I was cool. Exactly. You know, the genesis was happening faster, if you will, because of that. You've started five businesses. I want you to walk me through the things that are top of mind when starting a new venture. What are you as an individual thinking about with all of your experience? Yeah, I mean, great question. I think the first thing that comes to mind is how can I fail quickly? 
you know, what is failure like, what is the go-to-market, you know, and then bring it out there in form of a minimum viable product or in form of a prototype or something where I can understand if there is any stickiness to it. And then, you know, you go through, you, you've got to go slow at it, as in you cannot go build a Taj Mahal in one gut. So I'm always a proponent of figuring out the market fit, problem solution, go small at it, uh, get the stickiness, but get it to market fast, fail fast, understand what's not working. And uh, usually it's in those lanes that you find success, right? And then once you find, you know, it doesn't usually happen that you hit a home run every time, right? So, you know, it's those couple of ground balls that you figure out what, what, what is the pitcher doing? What is the pitcher doing? And, you know, eventually you kind of figure it out and then you kind of keep running those plays and then they start and then being home runs because you understand, you know, your, your, your dynamics, you understand your form and all those things. And then you start doing them better and better every day. I started my first business at, or I attempted to start my first business at 13. And since then I've had about 20 ground balls, <laughs> ground balls slash fouls. I've had one base hit and I've had one home run. But the thing is, you only need one home run. That's it. That's it. I want to know how you test market pressure. That's a question that I, I'm always curious in. You've got this idea. How do you determine? I mean, you might talk to one or two people and understand that this you're in the right direction, but how do you know there's enough pressure in the marketplace to actually build a scalable business? Yeah, your, your test group has to be, you know, uh, the right test group, if you will. And it's got to be unbiased. And I... I do not think it should be your friends or your acquaintances, for sure. B because sometimes they're coming from a from an angle of bias, sometimes they come from an angle of protection, right? Which, you know, sometimes is not good as far as the feedback loop is concerned. Your best bet is to go, I mean, for, I mean, in the modern world, what do we have? We have access to a lot of traffic, right? So, for example, if you're building an e-commerce site, you can build a prototype, and spend some money with Google and Facebook and, you know, TikToks of the world, drive some top the funnel traffic, see how they're interacting. And then there's amazing tools out there that you can install in, on top of your tech and you can watch what your customers, your potential customers are doing and how they're doing it and then collect the data on it. You know, it's a data-driven world and I think everything we should do today as far as business is concerned should be uh, driven by data and seeing what the user experiences do that data and connecting those two things. Yeah, I, I saw this tool, I think about four years ago, called Fool Story, where you could actually like watch the people as they went on. And I was telling this whole story about how I love this product once and, you know, and the guy I was interviewing was one of the original creators of it and I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that helps, right? I mean, that's that's how you tell that the market pressure is there. And obviously traffic, right? The data. You're spending X number of dollars. You know, what's your cost of acquisition? What's your CAC? What's your SDV? You're suffering those things out. Put it on a spreadsheet somewhere. Figure out the ratios. And you kind of get a blueprint idea of, hey, is this going to work or not? How involved are you in the day-to-day -day of the business? Extremely involved. We grew, uh, cumulatively, we grew over 400% in the last couple of years as a business. And that has meant we have been moving at rapid speeds to be able to capture this growth and keep moving it towards the right direction. Because when a lot of fast growth happens, things go out of control. There's a lot of chaos and there's not a lot of things under control. So 
you know, what we try to do is keep things as simple as possible. And I'm involved because for me, it's kind of like, again, I'm directing and producing a movie. I want to be the one to be able to afford the end result and show the world, look, look, this is what we have done together. But if I'm not at the helm, then, you know, that vision is kind of like goes awry. So till I'm here, that's where uh, my focus is on the day to day, getting that vision right ensuring the movie comes out the way I wanted to come out and it is doing the things I wanted to do. So you're an entrepreneur and you're farther ahead in life than me. As you've created these subsequent ventures, does it become easier because you have, you already have some, you start to have relationships, you start to know specific types of talented people in areas and you have more resources financially. Does it become easier or is it still just maximum difficulty? I think it becomes easier because you have more resources, right? Uh, I could not have gotten where I've gotten today with SkillGift without my team, right? So when I say I'm involved daily in it, uh, I'm involved daily in it like a coach, but there are other mm -hmm. people who are really playing the game out there. So I'm that vision, the coach, the strategist with others, other people involved. And if you don't have the right team in place, it's so much more difficult to go achieve, you know, what you want to achieve. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that the team is very, very important and having the right team in place. And that is, you know, it's, it's a constant challenge. I mean, because as you continue to grow, your needs continue to grow. So, I mean, when we were a $20 million company, our needs were different. When we are a $50 million company, your needs are a little bit different. When, you, when you're about to be a $100 million company, then your needs change again, and you've got to go replenish some of those skills. That journey never really ends, right, does it? You're always, you know, maybe you're short on one skill here or on another skill here, and you're always looking and you're always trying to find people. So I think for growing companies, uh, it's always a challenge, right? What's the one thing that you're working on personally? Yeah, so great question. I think personally, what I'm always working on is how to be a better communicator. Human beings tend to forget very, very fast, and practice makes perfect. So I think it's important to keep reminding yourself how to be a better communicator. Are you communicating properly? Is your vision coming across properly? Are you making an impact in the way we are communicating? And that's a skill that I'm constantly working on on a daily basis. Well, what's the continuous mistake that you've made a bunch of times with communication? Yeah, <laughs> too many. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, we're not a perfect animal, right? I mean, so, you know, there's in business, we make emotional mistakes. You know, sometimes we, we react too quickly uh, to certain situations. We don't get enough data. We don't let time, you know, we don't let time do its thing. So uh, probably all of the above, man. I mean, I yeah. probably made all of those mistakes. You're not alone. Josh is probably laughing because his mic's on mute when you, <laughs> because that is, that is very me. I, I react <laughs> pretty quickly. And then I, you know, try to remind myself that, you know, I can't just be like, nope, not good. Cause sometimes that'll kill people's stuff. Like there's a time to do it, to be quick, but there's also the time when you need to say, you know, either way, I'm going to have to figure out how to explain to you how we need to improve it. So sometimes I'll pull back other times. I'm just a little bit feistier that day and I don't pull back, but I always try to improve. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I have learned over the years and I still make that same mistake sometimes, 
even though I've learned and I know not to make it, is the fact that uh, sometimes our reactions may be in the best interest of the company and maybe even the, in the individual. But if we don't communicate that properly, if we are too heavy-handed in certain scenarios, the impact of that is not very positive. And so it is good, it's better to step back and uh, not shoot from the hip and really think about what we're saying and what, what the impact is going to be. So taking that moment to think about that, I think is very, very important. For me, I've noticed from my 20s to my mid-30s, that ha- it has gotten easier to sort of con- like just take a step back and to think about it a little bit more. Yeah. Well, in my thirties, I was too fiery, man. I mean, I I want to be Genghis Khan or something. Uh, but <laughs> that's when you realize, like, no, that's not how that works. But you you gave it the college try, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's wrap up with talking a little bit about the future of the staffing industry. Let's do the call to action before the very end. If developers are listening, they want to join your platform, they want to join Skill Gigs, they like this idea of the bidding interaction, because I've I've talked to different marketplaces, I've never heard of that, so that seemed pretty unique to me. Uh, how do they go about getting started? Yeah, it's, it's very simple. I mean, they come into skillgigs.com, they sign up, they create their, what's called a skill listing, it's kind of like an eBay storefront kind of process. We help them build their personal brand with a 3D resume, and then they just publish themselves into the marketplace. Once they publish, they just sit back, relax, and all the traffic comes to them. And then all they got to do after that is accept and decline. If they accept, uh, it can turn into an interview. It can turn into a contract gig for them. Uh, if they decline, uh, you know, they keep getting other bids from other options. So uh, they always have an option of the next gig coming through the marketplace without them have to worry about hey, do I need to pick up the phone and call a couple of recruiters, call a couple of staffing agencies? Oh my God, I'm stressing. My contract is ending. When will I get my next one? There might be a longer break than I'm anticipating. So all of those fears go away. The marketplace takes over and we bring you the traffic and you just sit back and you know move on to your next gig and go make the money. What type of companies do you have on there looking for talent? So, you know, companies like Facebook's on there, HEB is on there, uh, you know, those those are some of the tech-focused companies. Then we have hospital systems on there like Memorial Hermann. We have Health Trust or HCA is on there for nurses. At any given point, we have thousands of contracts available in the marketplace and millions of bids going out annually to these folks. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm in Nashville, so that's the HCA headquarters, so. It is. Most people think it's music. They think Nashville, they think music, rightfully so. There's a ton of great music, but healthcare is huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. What's the future of the staffing industry? What does it look like in five years? I think I think the future is being defined by skill gigs and companies like us, right? I mean, it is that market-based concept where you are removing the staffing company out of the equation, you're removing the recruit, recruit out, out of the equation and you're bringing technology in there and letting the two parties connect seamlessly and find the right you know, fit for themselves or transparently without any of the biases that exist by having human beings involved. And then human beings can exist outside in the periphery, but so much more work can be done. I think productivity increases dramatically. You fill more roles, you do it more seamlessly and with less stress. I think that's one of the things I keep saying, which is a hiring manager is always stressed because 
you're trying to get somebody into that role because you have something that you need them to do. And if it's not getting done, then your business or your work is starving. But with the marketplace, you know for a fact that the inventory exists right there in front of you. And you can make a decision based on what, what is out there versus you know, waiting for somebody to send you a resume or waiting for a phone call and stressing about the fact, can you fill 10 roles or not? So I think that that is the future. Now, within that, I think AI is going to be a big thing. And that's what we are really, really, really backing on as far as what skill is concerned for the next two or three years in the roadmap we have for our product, which is that you're bringing in generative AI and how can you, you know, from all the data that we've collected, like, which is what we are using for machine learning. So for example, I said it earlier in our conversation that with skill gigs, you come and create what's called a skill density inside your 3D resume. And the employer creates what's called a skill density analysis for their job. And then our technology matches up both using data uh, percentages and weightages to say, okay, Java 50%, Java 50% weightage does, I'm, and I'm simplifying it for this, uh, you know, this conversation. And if it matches, voila, you know, th this is a good match for you. You are going to end up hiring this person. It's kind of, that's where this is going, which is that data over the years has accumulated into millions of bids and millions of bids accepted or declined. And now we're taking it to the next level with machine learning, you know, with AI algorithms and saying, okay, now stop making predictive analysis on this and saying, hey, HEB, you know, you hired 100 people from us and what we learned from the 100 people that you hired, these are the kind of people who were successful for you when you're hiring for this kind of a role. So taking it to the, that level is, is where I feel the future is. That's kind of brilliant. Like companies will pay a lot of money to know what success looks like within their organization because, I mean, hiring and turnover is a huge, I mean, people are the biggest expense often, right? Because, yeah, absolutely. I and mean, the opportunity cost, right? I mean, you, when you make a bad hire, you know, what does it do? to your project, to your bottom line, to your vision of your company, your success. So being able to use AI to make better decisions, I think is going to be the key for us. What questions am I not asking or what am I forgetting? I think one question perhaps that you're not asking is, can AI be dangerous? Mm. Right? I think broadly, we're not talking about that enough. I think, uh, frankly, I come from you know, the school of thought that AI can be very dangerous if we don't create the right paradigms around it and the right rules and regulations around it. And its impact on humanity can be good and bad. And we just got to make sure as a society to ensure that its impact is good versus bad because it's a very slippery slope into the bad very, very quickly with the way technology is evolving as we speak. Yes, it's a, the government operates in hindsight. Right, they put the laws in after a bunch of people die from not wearing their seatbelts, or they put in the laws after a lot of pain has happened. Right. Musk went around for years trying to proactively get different countries, different associations, boards, panels, all of that to do something, and they just kind of shrugged. That's one of the reasons why he made his first open AI investment. But I don't know what what do you think is going to happen if you had to bet how this would play out over the next several years with policy and and the rise of AI. What do you think would happen? Well, I mean, all you can really depend on is history and see what happened when you know we went through industrialization. Uh, labor was you know treated through industrialization. How we had to come in and evolve out of that, and you know 
create labor rights and human rights and all that stuff and how you know the robber barons of the day you know they leveraged uh, you know industrialization to their favor uh, and uh, you know how did that impact society as a whole so i think there's a lot of history that's there already we can probably learn from a lot of that and main thing exploitation right we don't want anybody getting exploited because of new technology and i think that's where that's a good start which is how do you create a create an environment where the exploitation is something that's caged and it's not allowed to come out as you know as a big gorilla in the room and just take over give me an example of what exploitation would look like with ai labor and and so on well look i mean if companies can figure out okay i'll give you an example airbnb so there's a lot of airbnb owners out there who are always trying to figure out what's the best price my property should go out and be rented for. And there's these new tools, AI tools out there, they're reading all of this data, demand and supply data, actual buy data, and they're coming back and saying, you know what, your apartment should go for this because of this, what's happening in the industry, whatever, data points. Now imagine if this data was available only to big companies and not to individuals like us. Let's say you're a job seeker, you don't have access to this, this data, but a bigger company like an IBM does, and based on whatever they have read about you or whatever they have accumulated about you as far as data is concerned, extrapolated it, and they come back and start negotiating with you, and they know more about you and your situation than you know about them, it can be a very exportive situation. They could probably come and get you at 30%, 40% less than what you should be going in the market for. So we have to ensure that it's, it's, it's a fair playing field on both sides, right? That's just one example. Now you can just go down the road, the rabbit hole with these examples. There's medicine. You know, how could you be exploiting people in medicine with AI? Uh, there's, you know, different industries where this could come in and become a big problem. So we just have to be careful. And luckily, almost all the technologists I've met are optimists. You know, and and they they want what's best for for society, and and they're typically pretty good people. So I think because we have to, re, we I mean, look, we're in the same position. We have to rely on these people who are in each specific niche to be making the correct decisions. And it's not going to be perfect, but I'm just praying that it's good enough, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, look, I mean, we went through an election cycle where no, you know, there was two parties saying. You know, we don't believe you and we don't believe you. I mean, who won the election? Who didn't win the election? And then we went through an early election cycle where we found out that Twitter was used and Facebook was used and all these other entities were used to sway public opinion one way versus another based on algorithms, right? That's What is that? That's early AI, basically. Uh, eventually, what could AI do interfering in our election cycles? What can it do restricting our freedoms of expression, etc.? behind the scenes that we don't even know about, right? So there's there's so much different stuff that's out there that we have to think about as this technology evolves. It's a great technology. It can do great things. You know, we want to do great things with it, but we just want to make sure that we don't go too far. Did you see that Joe Rogan? Do you watch Joe Rogan ever? I do, yes. Did you see that one where he had the guy on who like has the business or the charity that watches Google and they talked about how Google has interfered with elections and they've gotten letters from different... Pol- I'm glad you saw that because when you were talking about that, I was like, I watched that whole thing on that guy. That was that blew my mind, man. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Now just imagine, you know, AI playing a role in that. And now just imagine at the speeds you're doing what you're doing, how exploitive that could be. Yeah. AI could be exploiting this and we not like don't even know. And the, the scariest part of that whole interview that we're talking about is I believe that many of the people tinkering with, you know, running these experiments and stuff, they might have good intentions, but that amount of power to tinker, what can happen with you just kind of exploring, I mean, it's going to get, it's going to get real crazy and real interesting. But again, I just have to go back to an optimist. I live out in an hour outside of Nashville on five acres. I've got my little farmland, (laughs) have high speed internet. I built, you know, a structure, a recording studio for this. And then my main house over there. So I see my family frequently and uh, we live like 30 minutes from a grocery store, but we just hang out here. We're enjoying life and we drive into town. That's something we do now. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. But yeah, look, I mean, the Oppenheimer project happened, right? I mean, we created controls around that. You know, there was for a whole long time during the Cold War, we were all scared about that bomb going off between you know, the USSR and the US. This is quite similar to that, right? I mean, this is a new technology that's just, we don't know where this can go and where it can impact us. So we just got to be careful and build the right controls around it. Absolutely. I saw the flyers from the, the 60s or the 30s or something where the hardware stores actually sold these bunkers that you could bury in your backyard and it was for like nuclear safety or, or whatnot. And I've never seen that in my lifetime at a hardware store, but I was like, that is a completely that different time. scary growing up as a kid, right? I mean, imagine. Yeah. Well, now imagine that that same scare with nuclear it was pretty rare to get your hands on nuclear. The average American citizen did not have nuclear in their backyard. Now we have it in the palm of our hand. And so now we've got this nuclear device, this this thing that has this ability to impact the world and it's unlocked, it's opened up, and every single one of us has has it on our device. It's, it's, it's different than the nuclear. Nuclear was easier to put laws on and to stop because you could just go find the sources of where it was physically and, you know, barricade it or do whatever you wanted to do there. But this is, uh, this is different. Yeah. It's going to happen faster. In the first years of recorded human history, a human being has ever been more powerful than they are today. Yeah. It's just, we don't even realize that. I mean, we are so much more powerful than our ancestors ever were. And it's right there in the palm of our hands. It's just incredible. More powerful than Genghis Khan. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, we did it. We made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel great, man. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.